Let's join together in prayer. We come with thanks, Heavenly Father, that we have the record of your word to lead and guide us, leaving us with knowledge, but also giving us understanding of the things that happened in Jesus' day. Thank you that we have this text before us this morning that we seek to learn from and apply and so that our lives might be reflecting your life in us. Guard us and teach us. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we're moving steadily along through these chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Chapters that detail for us the ministry and miracles of the Lord Jesus. But chapters that also tell us of the opposition that was growing against him. In these last few weeks, we've seen Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water. And both of these miracles have been particularly instructive for his disciples. And then we come to this text in chapter 15 this morning where there are no miracles, but there is debate. And at the heart of it is this rising opposition to Jesus from the Jewish religious leaders, which gives rise to this teaching opportunity for Jesus. Now, at first glance, it might seem that the text is a little bit of an anticlimax. I say that because what we've been used to in the last few weeks is not here in this text. There are no miracles to observe, as I said, and the challenge that the Pharisees and the scribes bring to Jesus is also along the lines of being a rather mundane issue. Hand-washing. That's not hand-sanitising that we've become used to ever since COVID came, but hand-washing before eating. This is what the Jews came with this question. Why was it? that Jesus' disciples did not follow the tradition of the elders in this regard. Now, it's fair to say that we live in a fairly anti-traditional age. And while the issue is not usually washing your hands before eating, there are many other traditions that have been jettisoned. Some for the better, some maybe not for the better. We live in a culture that has no fear about tossing out or disregarding some things that have been handed down to us from the past. What's new is good, they tell us. We don't want the past to rule us, they tell us. We don't want to do things just because that's how they were done, they tell us. And some of that is fair enough. But not everything new is good. Not all the ways of the past are bad. So it might come as a surprise to you to note that here we find Jesus and his disciples being accused of failing to observe the tradition of the elders. Established. Important. Now why was that? There must have been a good reason for Jesus to break with tradition. And if it was because the tradition had nothing to do with what God commanded, 
then why shouldn't he have broken with tradition? After all, there's nothing particularly pleasing to God about following traditions if those traditions have no meaning in his sight, is there? If those traditions end up being purely a human thing that actually go against the truth of scripture, then of course Jesus would be the first to rebel against such traditions. And so as we enter the first century world of Israel, this is what we'll find as we see Jesus push back against a false religion invented by men, especially these false teachers of the law who had set a trap for Jesus, kind of which we read about in Psalm 141 verse 9. A trap was set. So let's look at the text and note three things about the king in his kingdom who was confronted over the traditions of men. First note in verses 1 to 2, the confrontation that began. The Pharisees who came to quiz Jesus were not the local Pharisees and scribes but had come from Jerusalem and had made their way to where Jesus was for the express purpose of setting Jesus straight. And so they did that by openly and boldly accusing him of allowing his disciples to openly and boldly ignore the tradition of the elders, that is, especially of ceremonial hand washing. Now let's try to understand the nature of the charge they're bringing against Jesus' disciples. They were not charging Jesus with being, as it were, a bad parent who didn't make his children wash their hands before a meal. This was not a charge of being unhygienic. This was a charge regarding certain of the stipulations of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, one of which said that if you came into contact with something which was unclean, you are unfit to appear before God in worship. And so you must go through a purification rite to get that issue resolved. Now somewhere along the line, the Pharisees added a few layers upon that basic command of Moses that added more to that basic instruction. They reasoned, well, maybe you might be passing through the market. And you might pick up some food not knowing that it was unclean food. Or you might accidentally brush past a Gentile and touch them. And so before you came down, came to sit down to eat or to worship God, then your defilement needed attention. And from that came this tradition of ceremonial washing, of having water poured over your hands to remove that defilement. And this is what Jesus and his disciples weren't doing. And the Pharisees noted it and were angry about it. Now here we need to remember something about the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the ones who prided themselves on separating themselves 
from all that was heathen in the culture, even in a time when Roman ways and ideals were everywhere. And this caused them much angst to see what was happening in the culture. So in order to protect Israel from the heathen influence of other cultures, they began to add stipulations to God's commands to supposedly protect the authority of the scriptures and the identity of God's people. But here we see, as we do in other similar confrontations, that Jesus will point out to them that by adding more layers to the word of God, they were actually taking away the authority of the original commands, especially when their traditions were being treated as if they were equal with the word of God or actually more important than the word of God. Therefore, these traditions that the Pharisees here accused Jesus of ignoring were men's traditions, human traditions, nothing like what God intended. So this confrontation with the religious leaders of the day at least gave Jesus the opportunity to talk about the relationship between the ceremonial law and True holiness, which no doubt he had been itching to discuss with them at some point. See, being the Messiah and the final prophet of the Lord and Israel's true teacher, these false understandings of the place of the law of God and the additional burdens being placed on the people by this false teaching would have caused him much distress and they needed to be addressed. So second, we note in verses 3 to 9 the critique that followed. In these verses, we see that Jesus replied with a critique of the charge laid against him and in response to it, put forward his own charge. He used a phrase that paralleled the Pharisees, the charge that they had brought against him and his disciples. They had said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And he responded, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God? See the parallel? Except that Jesus spoke of the commandment of God. He raised the stakes a whole lot higher, didn't he? The tradition of the elders, of no consequence. But the commandment of God... Now we're talking business. The charge is a whole lot more serious. What was he speaking of? He was speaking of the fifth commandment, honour your father and mother, which implies that the responsibility of children towards their parents is a lifelong obligation, especially in time of need. But to skirt around that and to avoid the financial implications of that responsibility, the Pharisees either invented or endorsed what we see in verse 5, something which is elsewhere called in the scripture Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N. I don't understand all of it, but apparently this is how it worked. That if your needy parents, your needy parents saw something of yours, or knew that you had money, 
something like furniture or assets or other resources that might help them in their time of need, being aged, they might ask you for that thing. With the backing of the fifth commandment, it's your responsibility as a child to help me, you should honour me. But in order to evade that responsibility, if you said that the particular resource that they wanted was Corbin or devoted to God, then it could be morally withheld from the parents, even though they were in need. I don't know why such a practice would have developed, except to say that it appeals to the sinful self. But I do know that Jesus attacked them over it and said that by acting that way, the Pharisees were circumventing the whole point of the fifth commandment. And so by their man-made tradition, they made the word of God null and void. So I want you to see here that Jesus was not criticising them for being old-fashioned or traditionalists or loving God's law too much. Rather, his criticism of them was that they undercut the authority of God's word by ignoring its plain meaning and then adding to it to escape doing what it says. And why they did that was because their hearts were not right. So he quoted Isaiah's words in verse 8. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. In other words, they preferred giving lip service to the Lord rather than heart worship. And they did that when it came to the word of God. We'll just do what we can to avoid the implications. He told them that their hearts, though they pretended to love the Lord, were in fact far, far, far away from him. That their worship was empty and vain and their man-made religion of no consequence. And so we note here how Jesus turned the table on them. Instead of answering their charge and defending his own actions, Jesus had the floor and took the opportunity that was afforded him. That's why thirdly, from verses 10 to 20, we see the clarification that resulted. Jesus began with these words, hear and understand. It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man but it what is what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Note how he began with hear and understand. And this little marker is there to warn you that something important is about to be said. You really need to listen closely because something significant is about to be stated. Jesus says something that clarifies what it is that obedience to God's law is about. And in doing so, he taught them that hand-washing doesn't do anything with the bigger problem of the heart. Now, Jesus says this to people who love the ceremonial law and all the additions to that code that had been passed down by the elders over the years. And the implications of his statement 
would have been shocking to them all because he was doing nothing less than wiping off the whole ceremonial code as being irrelevant. Mark makes that clear in his Gospel, chapter 7, verse 19. Thereafter Jesus has said, it's not what comes from the inside that defiles you, it's what comes, sorry, from the outside that defiles you, it's what from the inside. Mark adds this phrase, by saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. In other words, Jesus abolished the requirement for all people and God's people with regard to clean and unclean food. Now this is not only a very significant moment in redemptive history as Jesus says this, but it's also more than that as we'll see. But for the present I want you to see where Jesus is aiming, verse 11. He's aiming for the heart. He's telling us that it's not what is external and superficial that makes us holy and clean. It's what is internal. It is there from which holiness comes. It's actually there from which sin comes too. A holiness that's from the inside out, not one that is put on. Listen to these words from J.C. Ryle. What is the first thing we need in order to be a Christian? We need a new heart. What is the sacrifice that God asks us to bring to him? He wants a broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? It is the circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? It is to obey from the heart. What is saving faith? It is to believe with the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to everyone? My son, give me your heart. See, Jesus didn't support this mere superficial conformity to God's law as being, or that's holiness. He taught the need for the holiness to begin in the heart. A cleansed and washed heart is more important than clean hands. He had no place for mere form, some kind of ritual that defines holiness, for some kind of superficial, that's all I have to do attitude when it comes to obeying God. He wanted transformation from the inside out. And so he warned the crowd, it's not the things that enter into them that make them unclean. It's what come on the inside where sin lives. We saw that with Solomon, didn't we, in recent weeks and months. We saw big sins that were started out as little ones. Roots that were never pulled up, that were in his heart. Weeds that were left to grow at the root in the heart where sin lives. Not in the actions of hands and mouths and eyes, but in the heart. And so he warned the crowds that this is what it's about. And then he pulled the disciples aside and warns them too about something else in verses 12 to 14 as he addresses perhaps the most ridiculous statement that any of the disciples ever made. Master, they said, 
Are you aware that what you just said offended the Pharisees? Really? Do you care, Jesus? Did they think that the Pharisees needed an apology for what Jesus said? Are you aware, Jesus, that you just stepped on their toes in their sandals big time? You bet he was aware. He meant to offend them. That was precisely his purpose, to show them that their teaching was not what God taught and that he was offended by it himself. So he went on to warn the disciples about the Pharisees, blind guides and plants that the Father has not planted up, not planted and will pull up. It's very interesting to see how, to compare how Jesus speaks to the Pharisees here. At one point in Matthew's Gospel, he reminds his disciples to honour their position and to be careful of them, not to be flippant in any of their responses to them. But here in this passage, he warns strongly against their teachings, saying God will judge them for what they are teaching is wrong. And he does that because he knows that false doctrine kills. And then to make it all come together and to tie it up so nicely in verses 16 to 20, Jesus speaks in response to Peter's request for clarification and hits the nail right on the head. Nothing you can do to the outside of the body, whether you wash it with soap or even liquid gold, can make you pure. Nothing. The issue is internal where sin lives in the heart. It's the heart that is wicked and deceitful and the heart that so desperately needs cleansing. What do we conclude then about this confrontation we read of? Surely it's a text that should make us stop and think. As Presbyterians, we like traditions. And that can be one of our strengths, but also one of our weaknesses. So this text might be stopping, stepping on our toes somewhat, but that's good. It's good because it reminds us that there are traditions of men that are ultimately not part of God's requirements for us to obey, especially if and when that tradition takes away our focus from what God requires. But of course, let's not throw away all traditions, but hang on to those that do bring God's requirements into focus. Maybe at morning tea this morning, you could discuss that. Have a discussion at your table about traditions and whether or not our traditions help or hinder the worship of God. But this text also reminds us of another truth that's worthy of note, summed up in the proverb about missing the forest for the trees. There's no doubt that the Pharisees likely had the best of motives when they began to enforce traditions, but they forgot one important thing. It's not the outward conformity to his word that God wants, but the inward conformity to his word. 
And we put more, when we put more importance on an outward conformity over against an inward transforming of the heart, boy, are we in trouble. Never in the Gospels will you find Jesus accusing any of the religious leaders of failing to believe that this is the truth of God's word. Rather, it was their inattention to what it said, their blindness to the main thing, their majoring on the minors instead of love for God and obedience to him. Do you see the warning? Are you more concerned about man-made traditions than the very words of God? Do you long for and desire the solid truth of the word so that it might work forth by God's grace in transforming your life from the inside out? If you do, then you've understood what Jesus has said. But if you don't, then beware that you do not land in the camp of these religious leaders who cared more about the external and cared nothing about the internal. Let's pray that we're not found in the wrong camp. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus clarified so many things for us and he clarified the root problem that we all face, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and desperately needs changing. We confess, Lord, how easy it would be for us if everything were just about externals, doing the right thing, being seen to be doing the right thing, and never have to give much thought to how deep it goes. But here we are challenged this morning by Jesus' words, reminding us that the right thing done on the external side is of no consequence. It's what you need within us, the change you want to produce in us, the sin that hinders us, that so desperately needs cleansing within us. That's the issue. And until that's resolved, then we'll forever be in the camp of the Pharisees. So please wash us and cleanse us. And as we'll sing in a moment, search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us, Saviour, know our thoughts, we pray. We pray these things in his name. Amen.